Hello. Is that on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Well, um, Happy New Year, if I've not said it to you already. Um, I'm so excited about this new teaching series we're doing. Um, Jess and Rich and I were sat in a coffee shop thinking about what, what kind of theme, substance we should be launching this new year. And um, we talked around for a little while and we just couldn't really settle on anything. And then we landed, Rich, well, what about the Beatitudes? And all three of us were just instantaneously, you know, yes, that's, that's what we need to be talking about. Uh, and I'm, I'm so excited about this message. We're going to be kind of dragging it on a, on a little bit. We're going to be focusing on, on, on individual verses. If you've hopefully come across the Beatitudes before, it's a, it's a list of um, sort of saying, I'm going to expand on it in a little while, a list of these sayings that Jesus comes out with. And um, we're not going to rush through them. We're going to take our time working through them week by week. So I think it's eight or nine weeks we've got, and we're going to be really diving in um, to the Beatitudes um, as we read them in Matthew's Gospel. And my prayer and my hope that as, as we journey through this series really is that we encounter the heart of Christ afresh for us this year. Um, I think in years gone by, we've, we've done series such as Practicing the Way of Jesus that are very practical. But, and, uh, you know, this will hopefully be that, but I think it, my heart is it really delves into the very depths of who God is and who he wants us to be and his gift um, to us that we've been singing about already together this morning. Um, I think we've got the verses up. I'll, I'll do the reading. Um, this is the basis of the next, or well, the whole series really. So let me begin by reading these verses from Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I've missed some words off, but it that's how it goes. Um, you get the gist. Um, it's four, about four months now um, since we all learnt of um, Queen Elizabeth's illness and passing away, and it's more recently since that we have um, seen the accession. Is that, is that how you say the word? Great. Accession. I was looking for the right word, accession is the right word, of, of, of King Charles III to the throne. Um, did anybody watch his first speech, his inaugural speech? Yeah, a few people. I remember watching that speech with, um, just really intrigued actually as to what, what would come out of his mouth, what, what would this new season, this new era look like for us, uh, for the royal family, for us as a nation, um, it felt, particularly for me, I've only ever known, probably for most people in the room, I've only ever known the reign of Queen Elizabeth II during my lifetime. She's been very consistent, um, very faithful, 
um, a wonderful woman. And so it felt like a, a big shift in the world as we know it. Uh, in his speech, King Charles, after offer, offering a, a tribute to his, to his mother, um, he highlighted the, the transitions of culture and the changes in our world that from the time his mother was enthroned to now. Uh, he pledged to uphold his royal duties, which is a bit of a given, um, to serve people with loyalty and respect and love. And then he dealt briefly with this sort of reordering of royal roles and responsibilities. And the role, uh, the role of a monarch today, the, roles of King, the role of King Charles III today is radically different from the role of a, a monarch 500 years ago. And it's radically different still um, when we consider 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ walked the earth. We, we learn through church history and through our Bibles that surrounded by rulers and kingdoms and empires, Jesus of Nazareth was born. And that's what we've spent dwelling upon this Christmas time. And in the first chapter of um, Matthew's gospel, Matthew plots out this family tree. He begins his gospel by plotting out this lineage, this, this family tree, connecting Jesus to the royal line of David and Israel. The picture of the Magi, the wise men, the, the three kings that um, has been cartoonified, if that's a word, a little bit um, in our nativity plays, in our nativity scenes. But these men travel for miles and miles and miles to come and honor the one born king of the Jews. That's why they visited the scene, to honor this new king. In his 30s, when Jesus began his public ministry, uh, the first thing that happened to him was he was drawn into the desert for 40 days, endured this, this fasting and temptation where Satan appeared to him and offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, which Jesus obviously refused. But then as Jesus begins his preaching and teaching ministry, um, what do we think was at the heart of his message then? We read in Matthew chapter 4, just before our reading, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The week before his death, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which was, in essence, a coronation ritual. It was the entry of Israel's new king into the promised land. And in fact, when Jesus was executed by the Romans, he was crucified it was the worst punishment. He was crucified for sedition, for treason, for claiming to be a king. On the, we're told in the Gospels that the plaque above his head was written, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And then when we read the very last book of the Bible, we get to Revelation, we're presented with this apocalyptic image of Jesus, the, the lamb seated on the throne of heaven. And I say all this because this concept of kingdom and kingship and royalty is it's a really significant central theme in our Christian faith. I feel like I do this every time, but look at the, the window behind us. It draws us up to see the king of heaven, King Jesus, our Lord and our sovereign. It's one of the central ways we understand who God is. And so what we have in our Sermon on the Mount reading, the, the words we just read this morning, is, is something of a manifesto from this new king and his inauguration of this new kingdom of heaven. 
And the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is the first of five big discourses of Jesus we find in Matthew's Gospel. And over the next few weeks and months, we're, we're going to be individually unwrapping these verses that Jesus teaches on this mountainside from the Sermon on the Mount, verses that have become known as the Beatitudes, a word which comes from the Latin just, just meaning blessed or blessedness. And just today, before we delve into those individual things, um, I just want to set a bit of a, a foundation, really, um, for the rest of the talks, set some context on what this looks like. Does that sound okay? Okay. So before we, um, before we jump in, into, the, into the words and into the, the bigger text of, uh, uh, of, of Matthew's gospel, I, just by way of setting that scene for us, I want to really draw our attention to this, this connection that we have between the spoken word and the person who's speaking it. In King Charles's speech, what he had to say, the, the message he had to deliver, was, it was inseparable from his person. Um, his character, his, his past, his history, his beliefs, um, his appearance, his relationships, all that made King Charles King Charles that was flowing from his mouth. The two things are inseparable. Um, and so it is with Jesus. When we read through the Gospels, we, we encounter his spoken word, his teaching, his ministry, his communicated ideas. But we also encounter the person speaking those words and those ideas. So the two things come Together, Jesus and his message are one. And when we consider the uniqueness of Jesus in his ministry that has shifted uh, human history, it's transformed the world that we live in, when we consider the uniqueness of Jesus and his ministry, there's, there's two things for us to notice, two key things. Firstly, all of Jesus' teaching and all of his ministry is done in light of God's eternal reign that's breaking into the world. From the reading, you might have picked up on some of the words, um, blessed are, theirs is. These are words that reveal the, the immediate relevance and accessibility of what Jesus has to say. It's concerned with the here and now. But we also read words such as they will, which are speaking of a future, uh, something that's not yet realized, something that is hopeful for the future. And so in the Beatitudes, we're instantly confronted with the, the now and the not yet picture of the kingdom of heaven, which is at the heart of the Christian gospel. And as we've just said, this is a gospel which is inextricably connected to the person of Jesus as well. And then secondly, the Beatitudes, as they've been interpreted and understood throughout Christian history, church history, they're understood as wisdom, a type of wisdom literature. Not wisdom found in, in rational thinking or philosophy or science, but revealed wisdom. A wisdom that is divinely imparted through the person and life of Jesus. And through his wisdom, Jesus is reinforcing, he's, he's refreshing, he's reappropriating the very heart of God through the inauguration of this new kingdom that has come to earth. And again, this kingly manifesto, this wisdom that is oozing out from Jesus' teaching, they're an embodiment of King Jesus himself. So the Beatitudes, they're not just these lists of nice 
abstract sayings, but they're the very heart of God flowing out from the Messiah's lips. King Jesus, we read about this in the New Testament, is the fullness of God. And through his inaugural speech to the crowds on the mountainside, and, and in fact, through the rest of his teaching and ministry, we encounter the fullness of God's wisdom. We encounter the fullness of God's desires for humanity and for all creation. Still with me? Good. Um, somebody mentioned to me beforehand as well. Has anybody come across The Chosen, the TV series? Yeah. Apparently, the new series three that's just... Has anybody seen the third series? It was on at the cinema, wasn't it, actually? But it, it's talking about this, and it's, it's giving life and animating the Beatitudes. So if, you, if you've not seen that, I'd encourage you to watch. It's brilliant. But they're just hitting um, this scene of the, the Sermon on the Mount as well. So it might be nice to... Watch that um, alongside all we're doing. Anyway, I, div- I digress. The, the main headline that, we, um, that we're hit with when we read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, is this idea of blessing. Blessing, not condemnation, not fear, not anger or punishment, but Blessing. The headline for the kingdom of God, the headline flowing out of Jesus' mouth is, is blessing. And in launching his, uh, his kingdom manifesto, Jesus is he's not demanding perfection. He's not demanding high levels of performance, but he's proclaiming in the midst of poverty and grief and humility and injustice and persecution, he's, he's talking about blessing. And it's really important, I think, if we just skim through these, these verses, we can interpret it in many different ways, but it's really important to notice that these verses, they're not fundamentally instructions. And by that, I mean that they're not demanding that we practice poverty in spirit and go around looking like we're uh, impoverished so that we might find the blessing of God. The verses in Jesus, they're not asking us to seek out grief and persecution so that we might encounter the blessing of God. That's what, they're not instructions. They're not laws or commandments here. The foundation of God's heart for his people is that they might encounter his blessing in the midst of life's sorrow and life's poverty and within our efforts and righteous desires. So God's blessing, therefore, is not something that we earn. It's not something that we, um, we don't curry favor with God. Um, But rather, the blessing of God is something that we receive. It's a gift. It's something we encounter and experience when we shed our pride, when we shed our self-sufficiency, and when we approach God with humility. So this isn't a new set of commandments, but it's the very heart and essence of the gospel. It's the very essence of the kingdom of heaven. It's the very essence of Jesus himself. And as God's beloved creatures, we are invited to to experience this blessing, to encounter this blessing by humbling ourselves, by acknowledging our helpless state. As Jesus teaches the crowds on the mountainside, you might have picked up on this theme, but we can't help but see the resemblance between Jesus and Moses. If you recount the the story of Exodus, um, Moses climbing the mountain, um, receiving the commandments from God, and establishing that covenant with, with ancient Israel. But this time around, Jesus on the mountainside, he's in the process of initiating a new thing, 
a new covenant that's anchored and rooted in his blood, a covenant rooted in grace, a covenant that asks us to place our faith in his ability and salvation, not our own work and not our own effort. It's a covenant that gently invites us to live a blessed life, secure in the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. The um, the Apostle Paul, the wonderful Apostle Paul, elaborates on this in his letter to the Roman church. And uh, Paul says that no one will be de- declared righteous by observing the law that was given to Moses. It's impossible. We all fall short of God, God's expectations. But rather through this law that we've been gifted in the Old Testament, we become conscious and aware of where we've gone wrong. We become conscious of sin. In other words, when we read and we digest the Old Testament, we lose the ability to plead ignorance to the sinful condition that we find ourselves in, personally, socially, and in relation to all of creation and the world around us. So we're not righteous. We can't claim to be righteous. We never can claim to be righteous. In Jesus, a new invitation of hope is offered, which comes through faith. It doesn't depend on us getting things right, You'd be pleased to hear. But it depends on Jesus' righteousness, the fact that he's standing on our behalf. And so for us, our response to this invitation, it can only be humility. It can only be repentance because there's no way we can do this by ourselves. If we look at Paul's letter in uh, Romans chapter four, Paul quotes King David and you'll see some of the resemblances here between the psalm and King David's words and, and, and the Beatitudes. This is um, from Psalm 32. And King David says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Blessed are. And at the heart of this blessed life is actually reconciliation and peace with God that comes through Jesus alone. If we carry on reading through Psalm 32, the the psalm that Paul is quoting, we read these words from King David that I think are are on a slide. When I refused to confess my sin, my blood away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped, stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. And the beauty of the Christian gospel, the beauty of the Christian message the essence of the kingdom of heaven and the very heart of King Jesus himself is this invitation, which I think is on the next slide. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Isn't that water to a parched soul? 
Jesus Christ, this long-awaited Messiah, arrives on the scene. And in this inaugural speech to the crowds on the mountainside, he proclaims a message of blessing. It's not targeted at those who think they've got it all together. It's not targeted at the self-righteous and the haughty or those who are affluent or uncomfortable in their lives. But Jesus is speaking to the meek and the mild, the poor and the vulnerable, the, the, the grieving, the dissatisfied, those who are burnt out by life and religious obligations. Through Jesus, the doors of the kingdom of heaven are flung wide open for all those who feel desperately out of reach of God. And this is why the gospel is called good news. This is why we sing and we praise, because God has done everything for us. We can't shy away from the, the warning. You might have picked up from Psalm 32 the words, flood waters of judgment and while there is still time. And if we draw upon the Apostle Paul again in, in Romans chapter 2, we encountered the uncomfortable alternative to this. He teaches us, for those of us who persist in stubbornness, those who are unrepentant, that we, we therefore evade the grace and blessing of God. We choose not to receive that. And we're left only and exposed only to the wrath and judgment of God who is good and just. And I highlight this because, A, I think we, we have to talk about this, actually, if we're going to be, be able to honor the text and the story of the whole Bible. B, it tells us of the seriousness, actually, of what we're dealing with here. It's issues of life and death, issues of blessing and um, desecration. But see, I, I, I don't think we can fully appreciate the significance and the magnitude of God's blessing if we don't come to terms with the reality of our own sinfulness and God's judgment of a world that's forsaken him. So I think they come hand in hand. We have to understand this concept of, of sin and judgment and wrath if we're truly to encounter the hope of God and what it means. Later through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, if you carry on reading beyond chapter 5 through to chapter 7, we see what Jesus is talking about here in more concrete terms. It becomes less abstract and more, more nitty-gritty, more everyday. And actually the blessed life that we've been called to live in, it's, it's different, it's new. It's not a continuation of the old thing. The invitation to hope and peace in the kingdom of heaven is that we are changed, we're transformed people. The effect of the gospel is that our hearts and the trajectories of our life, where all this is leading to, is that we're recreated to resemble the king. We're changed that we can live in unity with God forever. And Jesus quite clearly says in his Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to disregard all that's happened in the past. But actually, he came to fulfill it, to complete it, to bring it to, to fulfillment. But in, in Jesus, the world experiences this fresh revelation of God's heart, God's desires, God's commandments, which is to bless, ultimately is to bless all that he's made. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to talk about ethical issues, moral things, issues with which the Old Testament law was concerned with, issues such as, um, as murder and anger, marriage and divorce, Oaths and promises, forgiving people, giving to those in need, praying and fasting, materialism, judging other people. All these things become very concrete 
and, uh, in Jesus' teaching. And curiously, I find this interesting that against this new backdrop of grace and forgiveness, that actually Jesus promotes a more robust and weighty ethical framework than what had gone beforehand. He doesn't disregard morals. He doesn't disregard ethics. He doesn't um, disregard the importance of how we should live our lives. But he intensifies it because of his death and resurrection, because of the hope and the forgiveness that we receive because of him. Everything takes on this new eternal meaning. But because of Jesus, our righteousness doesn't depend on me fulfilling laws and criteria anymore. It doesn't depend on me fulfilling the, the written code with its countless regulations. But instead, we are liberated and obliged to live faithful and holy lives. Jesus indeed raises the bar, and his gift of forgiveness, it, it cannot give way to apathy. If we really, truly encounter this as good news, it cannot give way to apathetic lives or laziness or persistence in sin, but to humble Godly living, empowered by, by the Holy Spirit. Are you still with me? Are you doing well? Are you doing well? So what of this blessing? What, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it constitute? What is, what is Jesus offering the crowd and, and us today? Um, the Greek words, which I think I've got on the screen there, uh, makarios. Um, this is where we get the word blessing from. Uh, some Bible translations, um, they say, blessed are those. Some Bible translations read, happy are those. And um, I don't think either of those two words give justice to what this word means. In, in its fullest sense, makarios means favored. It means happy. It means fortunate. It means to be envied. In a similar account of the Beatitudes, when we look through Luke's gospel, um, the word makarios comes up again, um, and Jesus lists the Beatitudes in, in Luke's gospel. He lists these blessings, but they're followed by this list of woes, which is not easy to say in a Yorkshire accent. It sounds like a noise. But he, he lists these woes. Uh, <laughs> for example, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And by including the woes as a, as a a contrast to this. Luke enriches our understanding of what that means. Was this expression of grief and condemnation. And in the minds of the crowds who were listening to Jesus on the mountainside, um, they, their minds would have quite quickly been drawn back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, where God was offering the Israelites afresh within the Old Testament context, the opportunity to be blessed through their obedience to the law. In Deuteronomy, we read that obedience to the law leads to a blessed life, but disobedience leads to a cursed life. Can you see the echo here that the crowds would have picked up on blessing and curse, blessing and woe? But in the headline of God's invitation to ancient Israel in Deuteronomy was to choose life. And I think we've got this on the screen as well. This is God speaking to the people of Israel. This day I call on heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And here's the invitation. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. 
And now on this mountainside, the same radical invitation from God to choose life is being offered afresh through the person and the message of Jesus Christ. Choose life. Choose the blessed life. The old law was based on obedience to rules and regulations, but the new covenant in Jesus is based on grace and faith. The old law is um, concerned primarily with the here and now, but the new covenant in Jesus is concerned with both here and now, but also all of eternity. And again, drawing on the Apostle Paul, there's another slide, I think, here. Paul wonderfully encapsulates this in the beginning of Ephesians. You might be familiar with these words. See if you can pick up on some of the themes here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the majesty, uh, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so the consistent invitation throughout the whole of the Bible, throughout all of covenant history, is for us to choose life, to choose the blessed life. And we have the opportunity here and now to receive the entirety of God's favor and blessing because of Jesus. God's not flicking a few blessings at us. He's lavished us with grace. God's not given us one or or two things to feel positive and good about, but he's given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. He's not given given us these blessings on condition that we, we, we tick certain boxes, but he's freely blessed us in accordance with his own and will. God's not merely comforting us through his life until we pass away. But he's chosen those of us who believe to live with him for all eternity. A life of fullness and blessing with no more pain or evil or suffering. So what does, it, what does this mean to you, I wonder? This invitation to know the King of Kings, this invitation to receive his blessing, what, what does it mean to you? whatever you might think of yourself. However you might present yourself to the world. The invitation in Jesus is to let everything go, to surrender everything to him and his ability. And this is what it means to be blessed. If you feel tired if you feel heavy laden, if you feel at your wit's end this morning, if you feel you are burnt out, if you feel traumatized, if you feel anxious, if you feel like your life's got no foundation, if you feel lost, if you feel alone, if you feel grieved, 
if you feel angry, if you feel betrayed, if you feel like a fool, if you feel trapped and addicted, whoever you are, whatever you have done, wherever you find yourself, you, you are qualified. You're qualified to receive the blessing of God. You're qualified and you're in a blessed life that God is drawing us all into. Not because of any, anything you've done, not because of anything anyone else has done, in fact. But because of all that Jesus, the King of Kings, has done. Should we stand together, if you're able? Uh, why don't we just um, close our eyes for a moment? I've probably rambled on for a bit longer than I would have liked to, but um, let's just give some space for God to come and speak to us, to stir something within us. Um, I'm so glad I got to speak on this this week. 